Hello, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, with me this episode, Scott. Hello, Nursey. <laughs> okay, um, I will be watching Animaniacs later, thanks for that. <laughs> Back to one of our themed episodes. Sport is ancient and popular, and has been an important part of our various cultures and societies for as long as... Well, for as long as cultures and societies have existed. Little wonder, then, that sport should have seen a lot of representation in modern culture through cinema. Though, given the popularity and pervasiveness of sport, perhaps not so much as one might suspect. It has been posited by many that a large number of sports films don't have a broad appeal due to unfamiliarity with the featured sport. But I'd strongly disagree. Or at least argue strongly that that need not be an impediment to enjoyment. The audience not understanding the offside rule, not appreciating the significance of a three-ball, two-strike count with two outs and bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth, or not appreciating the subtleties of why one man did a better job of punching his opponent in the face than his opponent did to him are, for the most part, irrelevant. And that's because in most sports films, the sport really isn't the point. It's a hook, a framework in which to hang a much more universal story. Usually, the sport itself is an allegory for the exploration of something else, and the nature of sports, whether the discipline and training needed, drive and temptation, the perennial appeal of an underdog, or the get-knocked-down-and-get-yourself-right-back-up-again mentality needed to succeed, lend themselves well to many narratives. In this episode, we're going to look at six films featuring six different sports and representing many of those things I just mentioned. We'll look at a fairly straightforward biopic, sporting rivalry where respect is maintained, a desire to win at all costs and the toxicity that generates, sport as a force to unite and inspire a nation, passion, choice and independence, and sport as a means to improve one's life. Now, before we actually get into the films, Scott, I just wanted to ask you, certainly bear in mind what I said about not needing um, an interest in sport to watch a film about sports. What is your feeling about that? Because I think, whereas I am quite a sports fan, you not so much. Well, this will be a good test because I don't watch any sports. I don't care a whit about any of it for the <laughs> most part and haven't since I was um, a young boy. I watched a bit of soccer as a kid. I watched a bit of Tour de France as a kid. I watched a bit of uh, this, that and the other as a kid. But um, as soon as I had agency over my own televisual schedules, it was basically off onto the Mega Drive and... <laughs> <laughs> None of this uh, sporting nonsense. Yes, so I guess we'll see how we get on with these uh, films. But yeah, largely I agree with what you're saying, that the sport is a battle is basically a metaphor for uh, life's battles, and that's more or less where we're seeing a lot of these films coming up. Yes. I think where there might be one difference, I'm, I'm curious whether it will come up or not, we'll see. Again, largely it's not relevant, but as I do like sport a lot, not all sports by any means, but there are a few that I am I'm very passionate about, Two of which, in fact, we're going to cover in this podcast. Uh, and I think maybe the one danger for the person who does actually like the sport is you might get irritated or certainly distracted by things not being accurate. Hmm, yeah. But that doesn't really set us apart from any other film where things not being accurate really get to my nerves. So. Yes, uh, uh, a, a number of these thing. films are uh, based on a true story for some very loose values of base. <laughs> We'll get to that in due course, I think. Yes, and where true is any number between eight <laughs> and platypus. <laughs> right, so we are going to begin with a sport that is one of the sports that, well, I used to watch, but since every game seems to take eight days to finish, although they play <laughs> two games a day, which is a clever trick, um, it was more of a, a background thing, but is 
was and will probably be for quite some time a very, very popular sport in the United States. So, Mr. Morris, let's dive into our sporting journey with some baseball. Yes, uh, with the pride of the Yankees. Baseball has, of course, been formally recognised by the UN as the world's most boring sport, if indeed you can call grown men hitting a ball with a stick a sport. Baseball (laughs) games, if something so antithetical to fun can be called a game, often stretch on for upwards of 40 hours, making it only a slightly less reprehensible pastime than cricket. Um, I... (laughs) I hadn't seen Pride of the Yankees, a biopic of famed slugger Lou Gehrig until just the other day, despite it being something of a touchstone for the genre, uh, so it was good to visit this. Gehrig, for the uninitiated, uh, which I would have counted myself amongst until, well, just the other day, is one of baseball's most successful baseballmen, hitting many baseballs with his baseball stick. And, uh, Baseballist, I believe, is a correct term, Scott. Yes. And running, running, running in a circle like a dog chasing his tail, wearing a dog <laughs> with an unusually large radius. Um, I, I, I may not be giving the sport the respect I think it deserves. Uh, let's let's try that again. Uh, Lou Gehrig was born at the turn of the 20th century to humble, if not dirt poor, origins and discovered he had a talent for baseball at a young age. Despite the wishes of his mother, played by Elsa Janssen, to go into a more respectable profession, he winds up pursuing baseball firstly on a college scholarship and then after some largely skipped overturns in the minor leagues as a member of the famous New York Yankees, alongside other legends like Babe Ruth. Ruth plays himself in this biopic, but Gehrig is played, charmingly, by Gary Cooper, making his first, I think, Fuds on Film appearance. Uh, We must cover some more films of this era, really. While, unavoidably, this film must mention his career, it does take something of a backseat. Gehrig's achievements being fresh in the mind of the contemporary audiences, and this covers more his relationship with his family and his wife Eleanor, played by Theresa Wright. Gehrig had, by any standards, a remarkable career, and even as someone who understands very little of the statistics thrown around in the sport, it's clear he's one of the all-time great baseballmen. This film's not tasked with hammering home quite how remarkable a career it was, so it may require anyone not familiar with the sport to take on a little bit of extracurricular research in that regard, but it does a great job of showing Gehrig as as nice a human being as there is. Now, being a cynical bastard, and well, just look at the timing, released just a year after the much-loved sportsman death from a motor neuron disease that, in the US at least, became synonymous with him, it's clear that this is more of a homage than a tough investigative piece of muckraking. It's glossed over certain facts, of which more hay may have been made, such as uh, where this released uh, with some distance from his death. For example, his father's alcoholism is not mentioned at all here, and one presumes it had at least some impact on Gary's childhood. That said... There were plenty of tales of Babe Ruth's rambunctiousness around at the time, and it seems that no one's coming forward with any hushed-up tales of Gehrig slaughtering puppies, so perhaps it's true that Gehrig was, more or less as the pride of the Yankees suggests, a nice guy who lived a happy life, quietly doing nice things for people with no expectation of being lauded for it, who had his life cut sadly short by a horrible disease. The Pride of the Yankees achieves handily what it sets out to do, lauding the life and times of a much-loved sportsman. It's light on drama and conflict, I suppose, so if it's rip-roaring rollercoaster than you're after, then this isn't the film for you, and it's perhaps a touch too hagiographic for some in this age of snark. It is a roundly positive elegy for Eric, and rather like the man himself, I've got very little negative to say against it. Yes, I, I enjoyed it. Took lots of really charming performances, and uh, on the whole, it's just a nice, positive reaffirming story with a very sad end and it's a very nice little journey to take on whether it's the best biopic you'll ever see i'm not so sure as i say it's a little bit too on the nice side there's not much reflection on any negatives of his character or really anything around his life but that's not really the purpose of the film that's not why it was made it was made as a celebration of his life and it does a really good job of doing that he found this reasonably enjoyable this 
yet another of my storied infamous collection of DVDs that I've had for 15 years and never watched. <laughs> Watch the films I own? Why would no, you do that? That would be crazy, Scott. <laughs> and I mean, I'd, I'd known the name Lou Gehrig for quite a while. And when I bought that, I was quite into baseball. It was actually probably around about the time I was really getting into baseball. And after the first time I saw a Yankees match at Yankee Stadium, that sort of thing. And I'm a Yankees fan, so that was a, probably has a good chance of having the same effect on any American listeners as um, somebody in Britain saying they're a Manchester United fan has, I think. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm not a Manchester United fan, so I'm not going to alienate them too. But <laughs> but yes, I knew a bit about Lou Gehrig and he just had this reputation for quite incredible consistency. And one of the more remarkable things was that he didn't miss a game in 2,130 consecutive games. A record which people quite reasonably suspected would never be broken until it finally was, but not until 1995 or 1996 by Cal Ripken. And other records that still stand today. So, I mean, he was pretty, pretty impressive guy. And then it's always horrible when anybody so young dies from such a horrible disease. But when it's somebody who's in, in pretty much every way remarkable, it's always just that bit more sad. However, for the film itself, I just didn't find it particularly remarkable. I suppose it's interesting enough and kind of interesting too that you actually have the real life Babe Ruth in it playing himself. I think my big problem is I don't think Gary Cooper can act very well. I am not convinced that I've seen Gary Cooper before because I know I've seen High Noon, but I can remember sod all of it so long ago, may as well not have seen it. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking... He's so wooden, and I think that maybe that's part of... Because he's meant to be sort of the affable, slightly goofy, nice guy. Yeah. But it's absolutely the sort of role I can see James Stewart play, but play it so much better. And yeah, that he can absolutely. play that nice guy role with that's kind of slightly gormless, um, not so sure of himself, but still have charisma. And I just thought um, Gary Cooper was so wooden in it. And it's quite interesting that you obviously felt differently to that. Yes, again, to this person who was... Um, the suggestion being that he was loved throughout the country, even by non-Yankees fans. Mm. And I did a bit of looking into it like you did, and there doesn't seem to be anything that's ever suggested that the bulk of this aura around them actually was genuine. There's nothing to suggest that it wasn't yeah. true for the most part. So, but even that, as you said, one year after his death, it's not going to be a, a character assassination yeah, or anything like that. Sort of, it, yeah. No. I think that if had explored a little the hardships of his childhood a bit um, but you come to him as a as an adult basically yeah, uh, as he as he tries to get into his fraternity of 40 year olds <laughs> which I know it's probably because they want to have the same characters much later in his same actors much later in his life but it, <laughs> it did stand out to me that why, why are all these university students 40 odds you know <laughs> in this fraternity he's trying to get into but yeah, so it skipped over the fact that, yes, he was really, really poor. Um, his father was an alcoholic. He had three siblings that died as children. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, just something about that, some mention of it. Yeah, it's tough to judge this with the same standards as you would sort of a modern biopic where something, something treated this way probably wouldn't fly um, in this day and age. It's 
when you know details about everything and everyone's on the internet for everyone to see twenty four seven. You couldn't do something like this and expect it to be uh, treated with a, a kind of degree of seriousness. But I think for something that's not really trying to tell the nitty gritty story of Gary Cooper is as much uh, as I say this is this seems more like just a, a celebration of him. Um, in film mm-hmm. form rather than anything that's trying to really get to the truth of any, any matter. It's more of a, a condolence film than anything else and it's more of a celebration of his life than it. it works on that basis, I think. Yeah, but, I think yeah, it does, yeah. Not, yeah, but um, not as a hard-hitting piece of documentary filmmaking, no. No, um, although it does, it's strange, it does almost have a villain in it in as much as that I really don't like his mother. <laughs> yeah. Um, because she says at one point because she's very very ill and it's the reason that he joins the yankees and originally goes to hartford hartford in connecticut but and he originally joins the yankees is so he can get money for his mother who's very very ill and get her into a private hospital mm-hmm. but then he hides that fact from her and she finally finds out she goes oh um it would be better if i died than you when i became a baseball <laughs> player well die then you stupid old hag <laughs> it was like watching it, this film i, I find it reasonably enjoyable and finding I mean, them Luke is this nice guy and suddenly I'm just finding that I want his mother to die it's like <laughs> that's not right harsh words for Mama Gary Clare from Drew Tavendale if there's uh, any uh, consolation she has uh, and then so by the time she's like taking all of his his mail and opening it and opening his suit that arrived from stuff and I, I, she was <laughs> I wasn't enjoying her for, as a character very much no. I, I softened again towards her later on but um, <laughs> but yeah I think yeah, it's not quite a hagiography, again, because I think there, I don't think it was that much particularly bad to say about Gary. Yeah. He seems to, for the most part, have been a fairly genuine and pleasant guy. The issue is quite interesting, I think, too, because 1942, this film isn't. There obviously have been some biopics before then, but I suspect not so many. And also, probably Gehrig and Ruth together are the first two genuine sporting superstars. I don't think till, well, apart from maybe boxers, 1920s 1930s boxers maybe mm, yeah like maybe max bear yeah some people around his era maybe getting into superstar territory but other than that really you know, babe ruth in the, the 1910s 1920s then the murders routine that brought about that brought him together with louis Gerg. so that's the first time you're gonna have really had a film like that mm-hmm. i guess maybe i'm woefully ignorant and there's there's huge swathes of sport and myopics before that point of really famous people i think this is probably a fairly early benchmark for sport and biopic yeah and obviously wouldn't be the last but it's a pretty decent place to start off from though a pretty decent first of it even though i just i just don't think gary cooper's very good that's my big problem with it it's not so much the content of the film or the structure or anything i just don't think he can act very well it's my only real beef with it <laughs> it's a pretty significant one given he's yeah. a star right enough but <laughs> there's nothing controversial or nasty or anything about it and the word you use is quite good in a celebration so anyway, that's another another purpose a sports film can serve, I guess, is just say, hey, here's this guy who was really good, or this woman, but here's this person really good at what they did. Let's have a wee celebration of that. Yeah. No harm in that. Yep, no harm at all. Okay, so we'll move on from baseball to soccer with The Miracle of Bern. Drew, would you like to give us a bit of a, a rundown on that? Or football, as we all call it, Scott. Socher, it's called. It's always seemed to me a strange thing that the world's most popular sport has never been featured more often on the cinema screen. Perhaps it's because the structure of an individual match lends itself less well to dramatic structure and imperative than, for example, many US sports, 
whose seemingly limitless stoppages allow ample opportunity for encouraging speeches or inspired tactical nous. On very much of a tangent though, most of these US sports predate TV, but I'm sure that TV executives at some point employed, or will employ, time travel to ensure the structure of the games allowed for as many advert-filled stoppages as possible, <laughs> which is surely the only thing that can explain the Super Bowl requiring four hours for completion of 60 minutes of play. <laughs> tangent over. <laughs> Likewise, boxing, that king of movie sports, lends itself well to dramatic conclusion, the inbuilt pauses allowing a steady ratcheting up of tension. While real football, of course, often has unbearable tension, it only appears as a result of having watched the whole match, and that is perhaps one of the reasons why some of the most successful football films, The Damned United particularly comes to mind, barely show any sporting action at all. Yes, perhaps it's that. Or perhaps it's just because Escape to Victory permanently ruined it for everyone to follow. Thanks, Sly. Still, the beautiful game does occasionally move from the sports channels to the movie channels, and so it was in Sunke Wertmann's 2003 Das Wunder von Bern, The Miracle of Bern, which recounts West Germany's unlikely triumph at the 1954 World Cup in Switzerland, and ties it to Germany's re-entering of the international scene in political and economic terms as well as in sports, and the Wirtschaftswunder the German economic miracle that saw massive, rapid transformation and improvement in the economy and in industry of West Germany in the 1950s. We begin in Essen, in the heavily industrialised Ruhrland, where the prevailing colour, and mood, is grey. Football mad Matthias is boot boy to Helmut Rahn, a player for Rotweiss Essen, who he looks at as a sort of father figure. His real father, Richard, has been languishing in a Soviet POW camp for living years, and Matthias, his siblings, Bruno and Ingrid, and his mother, Christa, have made a hard but stable life together. Ricard is released by the Soviets and allowed to return home, but his disciplinarian ways and his cold and distant manner upset the family dynamic, and he struggles to return to civilian life. While Ricard and his family try to heal, so does the West German nation and the national football team's qualification for the World Cup is seen as a positive, unifying and potentially uplifting common cause that the country can get behind. Ran is picked for Sepp Herberger's national team, and the story divides between the team in Switzerland and Essen, where Matthias tries to follow his hero from afar, while at the same time trying to learn who his father was and is. At the time of its release 14 years ago, there was a lot of grumbling from English critics about this film portraying Germany as the plucky underdogs, and questioning why we should care, and other such nonsense. To which, I say two things. One, West Germany, and later Germany Germany, may be a four-time World Cup winning football powerhouse now, but in 1954, and against an unbeaten in four years Hungary, with all-time great friends Pushkas inside, they were the underdogs. And two, shut up. <laughs> When you're forced to live on an island where a large chunk of the population are seemingly incapable of stopping talking about Germany in 1966, <laughs> this film is refreshing. <laughs> there are, though, legitimate reasons to gripe about the miracle of Bern. While I enjoyed it, it is decidedly Hollywood in structure, and the words crowd-pleasing and mawkish would not be out of place. <laughs> the father, Ricard, has two particularly significant and emotional scenes. The first, where he opens up to his family about his time in Siberia, is quiet and touching. But the latter, 
when he breaks down in tears, feels both manipulative and extraneous. Acting-wise, it's pretty solid, with Louis Clamoroth and Peter Lohmeyer as Matthias and Ricard, real-life father and son, in particular sharing some strong scenes, and Joanna Gasdorf delivering strength and warmth without melodrama as Christa. Peter Franke also acquits himself well as the no-nonsense Herberger, and delivers such lines as Der Ball ist rund und das Spiel dauert 9 Minuten The ball is round and lasts 90 minutes without being either too arch or too solemn. Because really, that's a hard line to pull off. You either sound like you're trying to be really clever, or you sound like you're deadly serious about a line like that. <laughs> but if nothing else, Das Wunder von Bern portrays a time and place with which I'm not massively familiar. And it's a football film with Germans that manages to handle the football well, doesn't star Sylvester Stallone, and isn't escaped to victory. <laughs> It's also a useful reminder that people everywhere are generally just people. The Germans may have been the enemy from our point of view, but we're all given the same basic equipment at birth, and a soldier in any army has a chance to suffer the same stresses, horrors and problems as any other, and that, alas, is a universal human story. Wortmann's attempts to tie the miracle of Bern to the Wirtschaftswunder in the on-screen text that the film's code are clunky at best, but he has succeeded in the rest of his film in suggesting that it could be reasonably argued that the social cohesion and the renewed hope in a defeated nation that came about as a result was a contributing factor, or at least a catalyst. It is necessarily lost to my ear, but German critics noted in particular the strong mix of regional accents present in the locker room, reflecting the fact of it genuinely being a team which represented and united the whole country. Now, it's difficult to say this because I have seen so few of them because there aren't that many worth watching and one of them's escaped to victory. <laughs> but <laughs> this is definitely one of the better football films I've seen. I have seen it described as the best football film ever, which is nonsense, obviously. But it's uh, pretty interesting. Again, I would recommend watching this because you don't need to know about football to watch this. It can be a universal theme on this episode. You don't need to know the sport. But also because I think, certainly from my point of view, I think maybe you, Scott, we've probably seen quite a few relatively contemporary German films. And certainly most people are going to have been very, very familiar with Germany either during World War II or soon after. Or in like um, related places like in Vienna and Third Man when it's all devastated. Mm. But this period, just slightly after when the country's beginning to repair, um, yeah. I, have, I don't think I've seen at all on film. No, Not that I, I can remember, anyway. I can't think of any German reconstruction or firm films that I can think of that I've seen. I think you're right with that. I didn't know much about the 54 World Cup winning German side going into this film, and at the end of it, I still don't. <laughs> so, um, I mean, but leave it to us to pick what was supposed to be a nice, breezy topic after last month's little carnival of misery. <laughs> we're still dealing with a family's struggle with post-traumatic stress disorders from prisoner of war maltreatment and the attendant moral quandaries of sympathising with someone who's, if in name only, a Nazi. <laughs> Give us a break. Uh, as for the film itself, I found it manifestly alright. I've no real complaints with it. It was past the time well enough. Um, I agree with more or less what you're saying about the, the kind of its tendency to over-egg the mawkish pudding in places. It's, it does push it a little bit too far, but I think for I can forgive it that because for so much of the running, it's uh, doing it uh, doing it pretty well. Um, 
Yes. There's not an awful lot more than that I've got to say about it. Yeah, it's interesting that Set Perberger is basically an early German prototype of Kenny Dalglish. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it, it works. What, is, what is German for? Maybe Zai and uh, <laughs> maybe no. How do you think you'll win the game? We'll score more goals than the other. <laughs> Thanks, Kenny. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, as you say, it's probably more interesting. I mean, football has almost no role in this film. It, it, it's something that's happening in parallel with the sort of a trip, a road trip at the end, and that seems to be more or less the, the extent of it. Um, yeah, you don't really need to know anything about football to watch this film, and I think if you do have any interest in just watching something as how, how sport could perhaps knit a country together, you know, give someone to give a kind of common focus on something that's altogether more healthy than uh, other causes that have knit countries together mm, in recent particularly times. that country uh, yes um, it, it has a lot of interesting kind of parallels with that and it's a it's a well-produced and it's a well-made film uh, there's no particular complaints with it uh, we could you could maybe pick some faults with some um, slightly iffy compositing early doors but the it's, it has very minor points in it and yeah, for the most part, it is quite interesting. I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd put, be putting it very high up anyone's uh, list that's relatively difficult to track down, and it's, uh, it may well cause more bother than it's worth to do it. But um, if you do stumble across it, I would recommend giving it a look. And yeah. uh, yes, it's, a, it's an interesting film that I don't regret watching in the slightest. What it reminds me of, though I think this is a better film, as I say, I enjoyed it more, but it's similar in a lot of ways to Invictus. Invictus. Yeah. yeah. Although that film definitely focuses on the sport more heavily yeah there's a lot more of the actual rugby in that even in the final which is surprising given that the final was only penalties there were no tribes actually quite a dull final and they managed eastwood managed to get quite a bit of drama out of what yeah. was actually quite a dull final sporting wise but um, yeah it's got a similar sort of structure about the our country being united behind this common cause um, yeah. and that's compelling and as i say the it's the set the time and the place because I'm so unfamiliar with that, that alone for me made it worth watching. Yeah. Just true. to get an idea of, because it's not something that, yeah, I've said it before, but not something I think I've ever seen covered in film before. Not something I've ever even seen much on TV or anything. You know, there are yeah. like 8,000 documentaries about World War Two. Yeah. There's basically sawed all about what happened afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Which is weird given that where Germany is now and the economic powerhouse that it is now, it might be interesting to see where, how it got there. <laughs> Yeah, and you would think so. I mean, certainly given the the play that is made of the the state of the post World War One reparations and the, the influence, the causes of that, uh, the, the consequences that that had going forward, playing into World War Two, as opposed to the how it worked out at the end of World War Two, where the reconstruction of that led into the greatest era of peace that this continent's known. Uh, mm-hmm. since the creation of the continent, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. it's interesting that it's so under-examined. Yeah, it's a strange one. I guess it's un- the unfortunate truth is that peace doesn't tend to sell as many tickets as war does. That's true. You know, something like that. And, and t- on my cynical bent, <laughs> one other thing I just wanted to say about the miracle of Bern is, now maybe I'm just being too cynical, uh, but I did mean to check where the funding for this film came from because there's a very I was going to say conspicuous but it's not conspicuous actually because I think if people don't know who the person is they it'll be completely missed so maybe I'm just being oversensitive but there is a very minor character in the film but it makes me think that maybe that the company that person founded had some sort of role in funding this 
because there's a character in the film who's responsible for the team's kit. His name's Adolf Dassler. I suspect that name doesn't mean a lot to people, but if you heard his name um, in the shortened form as Adi Dassler, then maybe that sounds familiar because that's the man that founded Adidas. Hmm. And because it was just from his name, Adi Dassler. And he is in maybe three or four scenes in this film. Um, and you see at one point the German um, players with their new boots with the very distinctive three-stripe logo. And then there's a, a scene where he's showing off his new removable stud system to Herberger. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it feels so extraneous. My cynicism sensors are buzzing. Like, Is he just there because Adidas paid for some of this film? <laughs> and it doesn't detract from the film at all. It's just curiosity because it's not in any way significant other than at some point later they say, yes, let's get your the long range studs out and he's mentioned by name at one other point i think when the players are out drinking and helmet ran says that dassler caught them i found them in the entrance of the hotel hmm. but it's just i don't know whether that's because the screenwriter maybe just was interested in adi dassler knew that kind of that's where the f- company really got going was with the success of german football or something like that hmm. it's just such a strange thing because it, it's not overt enough to be to make me think, oh yes, it's definitely a, a publicity thing, but then it's, because it's not overt, like, it's kind of pointless. <laughs> yeah, and, and now they're just quite known for sponsoring things, it's more or less what they do. It's, it's, um, yeah, um, and yeah, it's a very, very long um, and successful relationship with the German football team. It's just, I, don't, I think maybe that's just a historical interesting because he was a very successful German businessman and a very successful German company. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's as much as that because that is the the economic miracle was starting then. Yeah, you, maybe you it's that. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Uh, but when you point out, it's very obvious now. But uh, it flew over my head when I was watching this. I didn't make that connection at all. I I kind of just figured it was more. I wasn't really quite sure why removable studs were such a big thing, but I just took it as being some sort of um, metaphor for uh, German technical advances <laughs> and competence that was going on at the time, but. Yeah, no. When when you when you point out, yeah, it does seem quite uh, quite redundant. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, possibly I'm just being too sensitive overthinking it. Maybe it was. It's just because it is being tied into the um, the economic miracle. Maybe it's, it's yeah. as much as that. It's uh, a wee nod to that. It doesn't detract from the film one way or the other. So no, no, it's not a problem. It's just a curiosity to me. Right then, we're going to stick um, at least partly in the German speaking world. And also come back to our own shores, come to Britain, Scott. We're going to, and then really, I suppose, travel around the world. Um, another particularly international sport. We're going to my second, oh, third, second, either second or third favorite sport. <laughs> um, so I'm glad we're doing this one. Um, we're going to the world of Formula One, which yes. then also I know bores you to tears. Yes, with uh, Rush. So Rush Formula One has, of course, been formally recognised by the United Nations as the world's most boring sport, if you can call overpaid prima donnas pootling around in a circle a sport, with races taking upwards of 15 hours to complete, if racing is the correct term for this engine parade, it's an only slightly re- less reprehensible pastime than cricket. Uh, <laughs> Rush, in this instance, of course, refers to Mega Man's dog from the classic Nintendo series that tells us of the... <laughs> Rivalry between English playboy James Hunt, a thrill-seeking instinctual driver played by Thor, Chris Hemsworth, and Nicky Lauda, a technical genius almost unhealthily obsessed with the sport played by the excellent Daniel Bruhl. 
it starts off with their earliest meetings in Formula 3 and their instant dislike for each other, which makes for a good setup in a biopic, even if it is a total fabrication. Naughty Ron Howard and Peter Morgan, straight to bed with no supper for you lads. We're introduced also to Hunt's turbulent marriage to supermodel Susie Miller and Nikki's rather less whirlwind marriage to Marlene Knauss as the pair's careers progress towards the 1976 Formula 1 season, with Lauda driving for Ferrari and Hunt moving from the disfunct Hesketh team to Ferrari's near-eternal F1 rival McLaren, which resurfaces their interpersonal conflict. It's a tense back-and-forth season, which at least when distilled down to an hour, and one thrown into chaos after Lauda's terrible crash at the Nürburgring, which saw him suffer severe burns to his face and lungs. In a triumph of guts over sensibility, a still-bloodied Lauda returns to racing in six weeks to try and nail down the Drivers' Championship, but a combination of Lauda's sensible precaution in the season's final race in Japan and Hunt's recklessness in drive sees Hunt triumph proving himself in the eyes of the world and, most importantly, himself. Uh, it's a pleasure to revisit, revisit Rush and is just as accessible to the non-F1 fan now as it is then. It's no surprise that Daniel Brule gives a great performance, uh, perhaps a bit more so from Hemsworth after his subsequent vanishing into Marvel's black hole of filmmaking, but here he is very good indeed. I believe my criticism at the time was that it doesn't do a great job of showing the progression of time in the early runnings, and it still doesn't, I suppose, but on reflection it's just skipping through to the interesting bits. And if you decided to play this as a drama rather than a documentary, that's fair enough. Well done, Brown How- Ron Howard and Peter Morgan. Come down, have your supper. Uh, so, concerns about the absolute veracity of this aside, it's rather playing up the rivalry between Lauda and Hunt to a degree that wasn't really pleasant <laughs> in actuality. They were roommates for a while, they weren't really all that uh, upset with each other in, in general terms. That aside... It's a very enjoyable watch and is very well worth your time. Lots of really nice shots that get over how dangerous and how uh, exciting it must be for F1 drivers to be going down the tracks. They get a really great impression of the speed. Uh, Ron Howard does, uh, does a pretty good job of that and he reigns in most of his tendency towards the sentimental side of things. Mm. This is uh, very it's dry. It's one of the Ron Howard, Dave Ron Howard films. <laughs> yes, and it's uh, pleasant in the way that it doesn't go out of its way to show either of its two characters as being either the villain or the hero of the mm, piece. Uh, yep, both yep. both have their flaws, and uh, both have their strengths, and you can appreciate both uh, characters for what they are um, as the film progresses on through it. So, yes, it's a really masterful job. It does a, a great job of telling a, a sporting rivalry, and it's a, it's a really good way of showing that. Now, it may not actually be true, or <laughs> it's only true in a very limited sense, but that aside... It's a really good film <laughs> in terms of how it shows that. So, yeah, as long as you're not too hung up on the actuality of it, then, yes, a very enjoyable watch indeed. I've always been very, very fond of this film. I've seen it multiple times now. And, yes, it maybe it does overplay the rivalry in the beginning. Mm. Um, certainly there have been rivalries in Formula 1, and sometimes they're a little bitter. But generally... Um, there's always respect because all of these people have always realised that they're doing a very dangerous job. Yes. Um, it's not necessarily the sort of job you should laud someone for doing it's dangerous because they're doing it by choice. But still, it's the it's very dangerous. And in that period in the 1970s, yeah. before Jackie Stewart's spearheading of the campaigns to really make F1 really, really safe, which it really is now, it's incredible, mm-hmm. considering the speeds at which they crash and such like. But drivers were dying monthly 
the the attrition rate for drivers was horrendous. Yeah, People yeah. were getting crippled, and literally, um, you could go f- some races where a driver would die every race. You know, it's it was so bad, and there were in these cars that were f- basically an engine on wheels and not an awful lot of bodywork to protect them. Yeah, with unprotected fuel tanks that could burst into flames when they crashed because they crashed so fast that it punctured the fuel tank and burned. Mm. And instead of the really high-tech stuff like the Armco barriers and the oh, sorry, Tech Pro, the type they have now that can absorb a lot of impact, they had straw bales, which yeah. not only just absorb nothing, move <laughs> when the car goes into them, are flammable. <laughs> yes. So the fact that more people didn't die is quite astonishing. So it's... The point being, yes, that while there may have been rival, there's always respect. And that does come through in the yeah. film. Yes, it overplays it a bit at the start, but there's always respect because they realise that what they're doing is very dangerous. And there's always respect for the skill too. And that's one of the things I like about it so much too, is, is that there is this, there's a professional rivalry, but there's professional respect between each, each of these drivers um, and Loud and Hunt in particular. And that there's not, they're not trying to trip each other up. They're not doing stupid things to each other. They're not going to try and sabotage cars or something. Yeah. It's like, hmm, this person's doing better than me. I'm going to work really, really hard to be better than him. Yeah. You know, the way it actually works in real life too. And it turns out if you do what people do in real life, you know, trying to just be better and train harder or drive harder or practice more or something. I said in Louder's case, whereas Hunt, um, I certainly in the film has suggested he relies more on just raw talent, which certainly now you couldn't, you couldn't do you'd need to do the work as well maybe it was in the 70s a bit different but it's if you show the real stuff people do actually still makes for compelling drama you know seeing someone do a thing well is really rewarding and talking of seeing people do a thing well the acting is fantastic in this film i would have liked to have seen more of the hooray henry of the hesquith team because he's fascinating yes it's a whole um racing team basically running champagne (laughs) (laughs) it's fascinating and fantastic yeah daniel brill daniel brill's always fantastic Mm. and he has he's almost doing an impersonation of nicky loudness because if you're familiar with nicky loud at all which i know you're not but his mannerisms his speech pattern and almost his accent is spot on for brill and because brill's german and loud as austrian there is a difference um Mm. i don't know if it's as pronounced as difference between say united kingdom and United States accent wise I mean I can tell the difference there is a difference but I don't know if it feels the same but certainly um, he's not acting in his normal accent and he does a very very good job of it Yeah. but it's almost like Diamond with Faint Praise um, I may have a backhanded compliment but you kind of expect him to be brilliant whereas Chris Hemsworth I think is probably the person who comes out of this with most credit Yeah. because he's managing to not be Thor basically (laughs) (laughs) I mean I've seen Hemsworth in a handful of other things. A very small role in Star Trek, but it's not a great film, but in, in the heart of the sea. He shows he clearly he, the guy can act. Let's just forget Ghostbusters and his role as the male bimbo. Yeah, in this he manages to make you forget all about Thor and does a really, really good job as James Hunt. I mean, maybe he doesn't come out as well in the accent stakes as Brill, because his accent does sound a bit like his Thor accent rather than um, James Hunt's, which was quite distinctive, but yeah, um, act, the acting's great. The way the story goes is compelling because it's closer to reality and it certainly doesn't try to go too over the top with a lot of things. The writing and the directing, particularly surprising for Ron Howard, is quite restrained. Yeah. 
And I, uh, you mentioned it, the action sequences are really well handled. There was some CGI used, but they used a lot of classic and replica cars as well, so they're real practical effects too. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm kidding myself, but I think I can tell the difference and it, it's always better when they're real. Yeah. Yeah, it's, again, it's another thing where it's not so much about the particular sport. It's um, It's just about maybe what sport brings, what sport requires. It's dedication, professionalism, certainly in Lauda's case, passion, but in this case also respect and admiration mm-hmm. and and uh, an incredible ability to overcome the odds in Lauda's case because yes, as you say, six weeks he was he was up to his waist in fuel. He was on fire. He, he um, lost so much skin. He lost his ears. He breathed all the fumes and it's always the fumes that are the problem mm-hmm. rather than the actual burning yeah. to the exterior of the body. And there's that horrendous scene where he gets this metre-long piece of steel put down his throat to to remove fluid from his lungs. Yeah. Um, and then six weeks later, he's back in a racing car. Yeah. Wow. And, and clearly that particular, going back to so it, didn't do him any harm because he won three world titles in total and Nicky Lauda's still going. He's non-executive chairman of the Mercedes F1 team. You know, yeah. he's still around F1 today. But then, as well as doing that incredible determination, he, he wasn't a stupid person. Lauda was always very, very clever and he, he looked at that um, torrential rain at the Japanese Grand Prix where he lost that championship but, mm-hmm. yeah no I'm not yeah. doing that I'll die which you could well have done and with F1 being so much less safe then even now with that sort of rain I don't think I'd race it yeah it's that sort of thing that's rewarding um, again just doing seeing a thing done well I like that that's why even something as ostensibly dull as cutting up some fish like in the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Yeah. There's something kind of compelling about just seeing someone raise something to an art and doing it very well. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree. One of the best sporting films that there is. And uh, would, mm. if anyone's not seen Agreed. much already, then uh, certainly put it straight to the top of your list. Yeah. I know certainly that the name Ron Howard has the potential to put people off because he has that same sort of weakness that Spielberg can have too, mm. of being overly sentimental, at the very least. And while Ron Howard at his best is nowhere near approaching Spielberg at his best, on his very, very good days, he can produce a film like Rush, and Rush is very, very good. Yeah. Even if you don't know or care about Formula One, um, it's worth watching. And just to the world in general, more Daniel Brühl, please. Yes. <laughs> so we'll move from the racing circuits of Formula 1 to the racing circuits of Roller Derby? Yes. Yes. It's a strange one, this. Though by no means all, most sports films are about popular sports. That makes sense. That's basic economics, right? Um, And, for instance, there are a pretty substantial number of cricket films, something Scott and I discovered while researching which films we would do for this, but obviously we're not going to do it because cricket... But there are a pretty substantial number of cricket films, but since cricket is, depending on the method of measuring, either the second or third most popular sport in the entire world, then that makes a whole heap of sense. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the connection between films and the popularity, not the popularity because it's cricket and makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) But the popularity of a sport doesn't necessarily have any bearing on how often or how well that sport transitions to film. See, football. But quite a number of films have taken fairly niche sports and successfully made a compelling story out of them. 
One such is Whippet, based on the sport of roller derby. Yes, I should probably add a question mark to the end of that, as, as Scott did too. Um, was roller derby? There are a surprisingly large number of films based on roller skating of some kind, i.e. there is more than one. <laughs> <laughs> but Whippet was a relatively timely one, being released just a few years after the revival of roller derby as a women-only competitive amateur sport in Austin in Texas. Now, don't ask me how the game works. I've seen this film three times now, and I'm still none the wiser on the intricacies of scoring. I just know that there is a lot of going around in a circle, many injuries, a lot of violence, and somewhere in the midst of this, points are apparently scored. <laughs> one team wins, and, most remarkably of all, no one is arrested or sued. <laughs> Not that it matters, of course, because the point, as it almost always is, isn't about the sport, but about the passion. Ellen Page's Bliss Cavender. Cavender? Cavender? I can't remember how she pronounces it now. Ellen uh, Page's Beluga Caviar <laughs> is, a, is a high school student whose main pastime is taking part in mother-daughter beauty pageants with her postal worker mother, Brooke, Marcia Gay Harden. These pageants are of great importance to Brooke, but to Bliss are a tedious obligation and certainly not something that she'd choose for herself. On a trip to Austin, she discovers Roller Derby, a female pastime that is quite the antithesis to the genteel and mind-numbing pageant scene. I assume pageants have a scene. It's probably very slow and boring, but they probably have a scene. In an act of relatively mild teenage rebellion, 17-year-old Bliss lies about her age and signs up to a team called the Hurl Scouts. Taking for herself the nom de guerre, Babe Ruthless, she soon becomes a star. That also makes her a target and her bruises and other injuries make it very difficult for her to conceal her secret from her mother. There's not much original here, and nothing that happens will surprise anyone. The one-time perennial losers begin to win, and care about winning. The rebellious teen butts heads with her parents, especially her mother, who want to control her life and stop her following her passion. They eventually succumb and become fans. The heroine earns the respect of her rival. Really, nothing original. But, you know what? It's still kind of a nice film. First time director Drew Barrymore lacks the experience to give the film a good flow. It's all angles and edges. But in her small on-screen role as the wonderfully named Smashley Simpson, she's a warm presence, as is the ever-great Kristen Wiig and Arrested Development's Aaliyah Shawkat. Marsha Gay Hard, I always find difficult to warm to, but at least she's considerably more likeable than her character in The Mist. My internal Marsha Gay Harden weather vane. Yes, of course I have one of those, don't you? <laughs> Tends to get stuck on due Mrs. Carmody. We could have put Bend it like Beckham in here and said much the same things because they're pretty much the same film. But lack of originality aside, it's still worth catching up on if you've never seen it. Yeah, it's just yeah. a nice film, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's fairly slight. I'm not huge original, but it's nice. And I don't want to damn it with faint praise by saying that. I, I mean that. It's, just, it's nice. It's warm and it's pleasant and it's nice. Yeah, I mean, it's got that unfortunate sort of label of being the, the kind of very definition of minor work for all involved. <laughs> but I, I don't think something like this really deserved to go down the cultural memory hole quite so quickly and completely as it did. Uh, I, I never really seemed to hear this mentioned. I was quite glad, glad when it popped up on TV actually a few months back. Was the last time I watched it before giving it another look at it for this. 
but uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit back in the day and I've enjoyed it quite a lot now. It's not the sort of film you ever sort of find yourself thinking about in an idle moment or anything like that. Um, <laughs> it's It was pretty much immediately forgotten, but the bits that I do remember were I liked it. It has nice characters, a uh, nice <laughs> arc. Um, you were saying with Master Kay Harden, it, it does kind of help that she's always playing characters you're not really supposed to warm to. So I suppose <laughs> that's perfect casting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's just quite warm-hearted. There's nothing spiteful or bad-natured in it at all and it, it, at the same time it doesn't feel like it's particularly you know this could easily have been Juno on roller skates and it's not it's uh it's nothing like his sort of somehow nothing like his hipster as it would seem like when you're just talking about it or uh, <laughs> just talking in general terms it's, it comes across as sort of very warm and very human um and not really ironic in the slightest which is perhaps ironic in itself given what it's covering uh yeah it, it's just a nice little film it, it should be seen by anyone. Um, I think anyone will get a lot of enjoyment from it. It's it's just nice. Say, won't change your life. Does absolutely nothing new at all. But it's fun. And what's wrong with that? Yeah, and yeah, it's got a, a lot of elements of other types of films in there. There's like the sporting underdog story. There's bits of coming of age, and mm-hmm. um, a few other things. It's a bit of a a hodgepodge of a few different things. But for the most part, that works. And I think. The coming of age part of it could have been played more strongly, and I'm kind of glad it wasn't. Mm, and yeah. it's because it's less about that, it's more really just that Bliss um, finds kind of finding her own passions, um, yeah. which is not necessarily anything to do with age, and like, and also finding a sense of belonging, yeah. which is nice to find. And she, um, she just finds something that's hers because the things that she was doing before were her mother's, the beauty pageants, uh, yeah. where she finds this thing that's hers. and it's kind of irrelevant that she's good at it. The story demands that she be good, that she be the star. But real life was just demand that no, it's something that she likes and she's found happiness in it. Yeah. I do remember thinking the first time that I watched this, while I enjoyed it, that I thought the kind of low key performances that Drew Barrymore got over cast felt a bit too low key. Mm. This time around, I didn't feel that actually. I felt that that, that was spot on. That yeah. it just it felt it felt less filmy yeah. that way. It felt a bit more natural and a bit warmer. That the that everything wasn't just you know turned up to maximum or anything. Mm-hmm. Because it it made the the Hurl Scouts feel more like a sort of second family to Bliss. Sold that dynamic a little more, I think. Yeah. So yeah, um, turns out that actually on. Well, third watch now because I watched it again. I don't know last year, the year before, I think. It's because it came back in my head because my head is one place where things like that will come into, even if the general public have banished it from theirs. Um, and then watched it for this, and actually, it stands up to repeat viewing. Yeah. So yeah, it's um, it's not going to blow you away. It's just one of those things that if you if it pops up on Netflix or something, um, stick it on. You'll be rewarded. You know, yeah rainy saturday afternoon you put that on is a and again you'll probably not think about it much afterwards but it's like oh, that was quite nice there we go what's for dinner you know and just move on <laughs> it's it's not a bad film at all i quite enjoyed that indeed okay scott we're going to stick with women's sport but we're moving to the other side of the world now to a rather surprising disney film yes we're off to india for in a, a manner of speaking <laughs> Yes, Dangle, uh, 
Wrestling has, of course, been formally recognised by the United Nations <laughs> as the world's most exciting sport, with athletes, nay, artists, like Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Ric Flair, Steve Austin, Necro Butcher, Kendo Nagasaki, Above Average Mike Saunders, Blaster McMassive and Flex Rumble Crunch, delivering joy to millions. Sadly, Dangle, a phenomenally successful Indian film from last year, focuses not on the excellent world of professional wrestling, but on amateur wrestling, which is obviously inferior. It's in the name, people. Um, it might be sport, but can it guarantee entertainment? Well, uh, such frivolity aside, Dangle is based very loosely indeed on the story of Mavir Singh Fogat, played here by Amir Khan, and his daughters Gita Fogat and Babita Kumari. Mavir was a national wrestling champion, but due to what he sees as chronic underinvestment from the authorities, was never able to achieve his dream of an international level gold medal in wrestling. While he's still involved with training local youths, he gives up on his dream in favour of a job to support his family, with hopes of training a son to follow in his footsteps and capitalise on that dream. However, no such son is forthcoming, he and his wife having four daughters, rather churlishly, leaving Mavir dispirited. The kids grow up, as kids tend to do, but it later appears that Gita, played by Zahira Wasim as a youngster, and Fatima Sana Shaker later on, and Babita, Shuni Batnagar and Sanya Malhotra have inherited some of Mahavir's fighting spirit after a schoolyard tussle. Mahavir takes this as a sign that they must be trained in the arts of wrestling and rekindles his dreams. Now, it may seem cruel to put youngsters through this intense training regime, and certainly the kids do not take well to it, but after attending an arranged marriage where the young teen bride-to-be uh, laments the state of women's agency in their culture, albeit in less social justice warrior terms, the kids resolve to take this wrestling lark seriously, both out of respect to their father and the hope that it could offer them a better life and perhaps a way out of their small town. Cue the trading montages and musical numbers as the two get better, stronger, faster and start entering competitions and winning against the boys, before going on to compete at regional and national level, Gita first being the elder, followed not so far behind by Babita. Gita is tapped for international competition and is taken off to the national training camps, leaving her father's self-built training dojo for the comfort of the dorms and the temptation of, well, anything that's not wrestling, the iron discipline. Iron discipline her father instilled slipping and her new trainer, Rongy McWrongface, wanting to her to learn a very different style of wrestling that leads to a losing streak. This brings forth some conflict between Gita and Babita, who, st- who sticks up for her father's teachings, and after some soul-searching, Gita and her father reconcile and work to go together for the gold. Now, I've not seen a great deal of Indian cinema, next to nothing, in fact, which is on my list of things to remedy. Um, of course, there's all kinds of cinema that I've not seen, but mostly that's a lack of time or availability, there was never any particular intentionality behind that. Uh, shamefully, there is with Indian cinema, as I was afraid that the Bollywood way of storytelling and the differences in culture would be too great a gap for me to give the films a fair shake. There is some of that showing in Dangle, I have to say. The place of women in Indian culture is inherently pretty shocking, from a hardly perfect but much better than this Western perspective, and there's a few lines in here that were brushed past in such a fashion that I assume they're not at all controversial back in India, despite them being about sexually objectifying a, what, 13-year-old girl? which certainly initiated a jaw-floor interface scenario. Are uh, you um, talking about um, her first fight when you're saying, um, yeah. oh, she's hot and I hope her t-shirt rips? Yeah, yes, I exactly. I that really, really uncomfortable. That was, that was squicky. Ugh. The other problems, relatively minor, I must add, are the usual based on a true story qualms, which is <laughs> basically the entire second half of this film, uh, from the introduction of the moustache-twirlingly evil National Coast, about which I'd be royally peeved if I were him. All of conflict of the second half is 
frankly, a complete fabrication and including a very stupid conclusion. Uh, yes, which, I was. I didn't check that, but I just, I just called bullshit on that at the moment I saw. It. I was like, no, that did not happen. Yes, uh, which is very obvious when you see it, what we're talking about. Yeah, the, the whole section of uh, this is your nonsense. Apparently, they're a reasonably good relationship with the father and uh, the, the trainer, and there's no such ridiculous conflict or anything like that going on. Um, but truth be damned, it makes for a fun story, <laughs> and that's the real takeaway from Dangle. It's a really well put together enjoyable story with colourful characters that's uh, going more for melodramatic, colourful, larger-than-life takes on the events rather than the gritty realism and is all the more fun for it. Oh, and my other possible source of cultural confusion, the soundtrack was a complete non-issue and the exceptionally catchy theme and its variants is a thing of great greatness indeed. (laughs) It is somewhat different uh, watching it from a Western perspective, I suppose. (laughs) It's used a bit like how orchestral scores might perhaps be used in Western films to inform on characters' feelings, except rather than just sort of hinting at it, here you get lyrics that spell it out very explicitly. Um, These are what the characters are thinking right now. Pay attention. These are the characters' motivations. (laughs) It's it's very, very direct. Yeah. Imagine if the score for Jaws was just someone shouting, Mommy, Daddy, bitey fish, over and over again. (laughs) That's probably the rough equivalent of it. Um, uh, yeah, so shark, I, shark, <laughs> shark, 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 shark. So uh, I heartily enjoyed Tangle, and I think you will too, so give it a look. Yes, um, this uh, I only found out about literally a couple of days ago while we were trying to finalise our list for this. We we had five films and we didn't know what to put, um, and we were talking kind of, sort of standard things of this genre, like Chariots of Fire, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then I just happened to stumble across this. I was talking about it. It was an Indian film that had been financed and distributed by Disney. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's, I don't imagine that happens that often. I know Disney are a big company and India's a big market, so it's maybe as simple as that. And then, like, and then oh, it's already made more than $300 million. Okay, that's probably quite a big deal then. It's, it's not Marvel territory, but that's a fair chunk of money. Mm-hmm. And I don't imagine many Indian films make that sort of money. And I'm really, really glad I happened to stumble upon that now, because it's really, really nice. Yeah. Yes, I do have some of the same issues you have with the attitudes towards women. Honestly, quite surprised that made it to final cut in a Disney film. I obviously don't know what their contract's like. Although the rest of the structure, either this, uh, India is entirely capable of making films with that sort of structure, or Disney has some input, because it does yeah. have a Hollywoodish sort of feel to it. Yes, um, yeah, it does. In this case, I would say it's particularly a bad thing. Right? It's just it's just a thing. It's, it's a characteristic it happens to have. It has, I've seen this from both sides, it has been lauded as being some sort of great feminist film and then for those saying, well, no, it's not. And like, I wouldn't say either of those things are quite true. What I would say is that for the way that women are shown in this film to be treated typically, not how this film treats them, but the, yeah. the what in Indian culture it portrays, Certainly in more rural communities, uh, it does seem very different once they get to the larger cities, like the city where the the National Sports Academy is. Yeah. Things are clearly different there. But that, you know, women basically are cooking and baby-making machine. Yeah. Is it? And I believe her, the cousin that's in their range, Marge, is 14. Yeah. Certainly the way that the Indian Martin Freeman, Armir Khan... <laughs> Yeah. So right at the start, I thought he looks a bit like Martin Freeman. I couldn't shake the idea for the rest <laughs> of the film. The way he treats his daughters, he seems 
kind of monstrous at times. Yeah. Um, and he's very, very disciplinarian. And it's certainly arguable that these dreams of becoming a wrestling champion, well, in the film, they are his dreams. They become his daughter's dreams. Whether actually they would have done anything like that without him forcing them, yeah. I don't know. But he clearly loves his daughters. I mean, he's far from a perfect man, mm. but he clearly loves his daughters. And he does, he spends time with them um, because you see with them and with his other two daughters later on life, he is not doing what is suggested at least is the typical role for a father in that culture. He is sitting with the child, helping her with her spelling. Yeah. Um, she's doing her, her English homework and he's helping her and he's making sure the daughters are doing things. And while you may have legitimate quibbles with his methods, his end goal is that these girls do something something with their life that they get to choose and that they aren't just married off. Mm-hmm. You know, that they don't perpetuate this idea that the women are there to cook and make babies till yeah. they make the new babies that then become passed on to other people to do the same thing. <laughs> and from that point of view, it's really rewarding. And I don't know if it's the writing or simply I'm your kind of self, yet while he, he's kind of a scary looking guy at times, mm-hmm. the, you do always get this sense that there's some um, real tenderness there. And because of that when you do see later on i don't think this spoils anything you do see some actual moments of tenderness and emotion from him um that they don't feel out of place it doesn't feel like that's been demanded by narrative or anything that feels natural which is good because in the second half of this film not an awful lot is natural (laughs) because it basically turns into a pantomime with pantomime villainy the performances are warm and really engaging and so they they sell those those more emotional scenes very easily and there's a lot of humour in it too which is nice and I think pretty much everybody except maybe the adult version of the the nephew oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of Mavir's nephew who's nominally the narrator I suppose yeah the narrator really. yeah <laughs> yeah yes and no and also I'm not quite sure why the film has a narrator but that's a beef yeah. I have with almost every film that has a narrator but it's um I'm not sure the adult version of him is all that great. No. Otherwise, I think everybody's fantastic and yeah. the kids are great. And then when, um, in particular, Fatima um, Sana Sheikh, who plays the adult Gita, physically, it's impressive because I know nothing about wrestling and it's the kind of Greco-Roman style, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure what the subtleties are. I think there may be another type of wrestling on mats like that, but it's quite similar to the sort you see in Foxcatcher. But, you know without a terrifying Steve Carell nearby. Um, <laughs> and it's really... I know nothing about wrestling. I don't think it would interest me, but I, I could follow it without... They do explain at one point earlier in the, the film roughly how the point scoring goes, but I don't think you need that because you can follow quite clearly the way it's shot. You can understand more or less how it works. Yeah. And it's actually quite compelling. I find myself really quite getting into that. And I think a lot of that is the fact that it's clearly real physical effort that's been filmed in those scenes yeah which makes me think that the the actress is actually a wrestler or if not then she's done a heck of a lot of legitimate preparation for the role yes because it she really sells it and there's one point also where the camera cuts and i'm glad because i thought i was gonna have to close my eyes because it looked like someone's gonna have a horribly crunching injury in their neck and i, oh, I can't watch yeah. that and i'm not normally squeamish about things so i was like oh. Um, it's a German suplex. It's like a degree of rotation away from just crippling someone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I, I thought, oh no, I'm, I'm, I just I'm, I was bracing myself for a horrible wince. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so the 
the sexual action scenes, the sports scenes are so well handled because they look absolutely believable in pretty much every way. There's nothing about that looked fake to me. Yeah. Again, someone who's into wrestling, you could probably tell you exactly why it didn't look right. As a layperson, they sure. absolutely yeah. sold it to me. And I'm really, really glad I stumbled across this now. Maybe it's a bit long because it's pushing three hours, but it's, for the yeah. most part, it's joyful. The music really helps. It's colourful and it's a different culture and a different sport and that's all interesting too. Uh, I just find it a very, very rewarding watch. Yeah, I, I knew it was a long film because it was one of the few films that is courteous enough to actually give you an intermission card in the middle of it. <laughs> yes, um, I noticed that. <laughs> but uh, I didn't really feel the length of it at all, actually. It, uh, it kind of pretty much flew by. I think yeah. I think if you're being hypercritical, I suppose, cutting out some of the nonsense in the, the final act might have helped a bit. There was enough drama there already. It didn't really need to be heightened by yeah. uh, playing around the with it. Nefarious but... schemes. Yeah. There yeah. was enough drama in that it was the final of the Commonwealth Games, you know, without it yeah. being having that other nonsense added to it. Yeah, um, but as I say, for for actually just driving a drama through, it, it, it works. It's, it's, it's valid in terms of it being an entertaining film, if not a, a particularly truthful one. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I, I just uh, partly recommend it. You don't, uh, apart from a few quibbles about the cultural differences aside, you can really have anyone pick this up. Uh, and it's very say, accessible. Yeah, very accessible. Yeah. And uh, yeah, even as you say, if you don't know anything about wrestling, it still uh, manages to convey the the beats that it needs to very well indeed. So yes, uh, heartily recommend it. And I'm glad I stumbled across it, and it's certainly given me a drive to go back and look at the uh, other list of. 10 or 15 or so Indian films that I need to kind of catch up with <laughs> to educate myself on, on this market, if you will. Uh, yes, heartily recommend it. And uh, yeah, a real real surprise of the, the show. And crap, uh, okay, it's not as good as Rush, but it's uh, contending with it um, for a first view. Yeah. Quite enjoyed it very much indeed. Yeah, um, I am just so uh, lucky. I'm happy I was lucky enough to stumble across that article. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I would have heard about it otherwise um, despite the fact that you know as I say it's made more than 300 million dollars and it's nice and it's just so colourful too oh yes yes absolutely um, which is just nice uh, I watched this the did I watch this the same day as the miracle of Bern I think so it's a bit and, of a contrast isn't it yeah well, when there Brown are colourful versus every colour <laughs> yeah I would certainly there are the colourful moments in the miracle of Bern because there's the, the kind of picture postcard scenes in Switzerland yeah. Um, but they're kind of pastely, whereas this was just, it was so bright and so sunny and so colourful. And I'd just watched The Miracle of Bern, which was grey. Um, <laughs> and it was, it, it was nice. It was like the sun coming out. <laughs> it's nice. And to boot, yeah, lovely film. That's the hidden gem in here, I think. Yes. I suppose this hidden gem is one that took 300 million, could be, I suppose. But um, certainly in this market, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd never. I'd, I'd never heard of it being discussed in any particular one. I'm pretty sure it must have got a cinematic release already here, but it's uh, just never showed up on any of my radars at all. So, yes. Yes. Um, $300 million and done by Disney. Uh, yes. Yeah. Hidden, <laughs> hidden gem. Um, <laughs> apparently, it was out here in December last year. But this thing, it's going back to what you were saying too, Scott, about um, Bollywood films and stuff. I've always been put off with Bollywood films because I assumed they were all just singing and dancing. Um, and like, well, maybe yeah. they are, but maybe I might like them anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, the list I'm talking about, I've just went through the IMDb Top 250 and pulled out uh, the Indian films that I'd not <laughs> either seen or heard about, and uh, that's given me a little list to catch up on. This was one of them. Yeah, um, if this is any basis to judge the rest on, I'm sure I'm in for a good time. I mean, partly it's, 
I don't want to use the word ignorance. I don't really mean it like that because I've probably not as much. Uh, maybe it is ignorance. I just I don't really know much about Bollywood. So whenever it comes to cinema listings, because cinema world do tend to show a fair bit of well stuff, I just skip over it because I don't know anything about it. You know, so I was like, when I'm looking at listings, I'm like, uh, oh no, that, my eyes barely even flicked it. Yeah, and that's that's more or less where I was coming from as well. I, I just it, I've never taken the time to actually investigate it in any depth. I've just kind of assumed it was not for me because I'm not that big a fan of musicals. I assume Bollywood stuff will be more far more musically inclined, so I th- I just made that connection and just wrote it off. And I don't think that's particularly fair without at least looking at it. Um, if we're going to look at something like the French New Wave uh, without having seen too much of it in advance and uh, we saw how that turned out, uh, then uh, it can't be much worse with Bollywood. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. rationale, if nothing else. It's got and to be better than French New Wave. Also, there's just a possibility that simply one song's enough to get me in, because yeah. there's um, it's a clip of an Indian film. I think in, it could be Pakistani, but I think it's Indian. Um, the clip of an Indian film in the film Ghost World, where they, they're singing the song Jan Pe Chanho, and I've loved that song ever since I saw that in Ghost World, and it, it, I say it's a fantastic song. Never gotten around to actually watching the film it's from, which is just stupid of me. I don't know why. <laughs> so yes, that's that's something to remedy, I think. And of course, there's also that truly epic Bollywood remake of The Matrix, combined <laughs> with The Terminator, which I suspect at least you've seen. Scott on um, Scott maybe a half in the bag. I know, you know something by Red Letter Media that I watched recently, actually. Um, truly, truly remarkable <laughs> in every way. Um, remake of the Matrix <laughs> with the Terminator and a bunch of other things thrown in for good measure. <laughs> yes, though. <laughs> the point being, Dangle's great, and don't blame us for the theme tune getting stuck in your head. <laughs> yes. So we'll round things off with uh, something that is very difficult to link back to Dangle entirely. Uh, so we'll just jump straight in to the Tour de France scene with uh, the program. Yes. In the rest of the films we've covered in this podcast, sport has been either a neutral or positive presence, but sport often has a dark side, where corruption reigns and the desire to win eliminates all other concerns, especially those ethical or moral. Performance-enhancing drugs also often feature, and no sport is so tainted by that scourge and no one person so embodies that dark side of drugs and a whatever-it-takes mentality more than Lance Armstrong. Stephen fears the programme tells the true. Please assume all usual caveats for the term based on a true story anywhere in the vicinity of a motion picture story of Irish journalist David Walsh's, Chris O'Dowd's, attempt to uncover Lance Armstrong's systematic doping that saw him win a record seven Tour de France cycling's most prestigious event. Armstrong and his team, consisting of lawyers, agents, doctors and corrupt officials, ensured that positive tests were either avoided or covered up and rivals, witnesses and teammates were victims of intimidation and blackmail. Walsh himself was a victim, being persecuted both by Team Armstrong and his fellow journalists, being silenced by the threats of multi-million pound lawsuits and largely having both his career and his credibility ruined until finally being vindicated. In Spain, this film is called El Idolo, The Idol, and its working title was Icon, both names which give clues to how and why Armstrong is able to get away with this for so long, and why it was such a monumental blow to so many, inside the sport and out, when the truth was finally revealed. The journalists and the public were awed, starstruck, 
the officials who turned a blind eye, at best, to Armstrong's indiscretions did so for the same reason, and because they knew how very, very hard the fall would be when Armstrong's star had lifted them all and their sport so very, very high. Sadly though, while the programme is an interesting watch, and without having to invent very much it has a wonderfully unlikable villain to root against, the programme is never really able to get to the bottom of what truly motivated Armstrong. And maybe that's an unfair assessment, because perhaps there is no why, at least in the way that would make for a satisfactory narrative. Lance Armstrong is a sociopath, something that is evident if you've seen the interviews he did with Oprah Winfrey. But I would have liked to have seen some more exploration of Armstrong's psyche. The film follows um, a good chunk of time from Armstrong's first performance in the Tour de France, when he's declared to have the wrong sort of body um, by Michele Ferrari, um, the very famous doping doctor. Um, and that he... by, by Dr. Nick Riviera, yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi, Dr. <laughs> Ferrari. Um, who I must um, point out is played by the same sort of level of terrible Italian accent by um, the Frenchman Guillaume Cane <laughs> that any Brit or American is capable of doing. It's awful. <laughs> and with a really, really interesting hairpiece. <laughs> Yeah, so it follows Armstrong from his first Tour de France and when um, Ferrari said that he basically couldn't win a Grand Tour because he was considered to have the physique for what are called one-day classics. It's like a sort of long race over one day as opposed to something like the Tour de France or Giro d'Italia, which lasts for three weeks and are incredibly grueling. But after, I think at the age of 23, after Armstrong's medical scare with his testicular cancer, he comes back leaner um, and his physique having changed somewhat and then basically turns up at Dr Ferrari's door and says right doc how much cheating do I have to do to win all this stuff then and Ferrari <laughs> goes well my boy I can do all the cheating in the world and will make a success of this yes. um, because the film it tries at no point to suggest that Armstrong was anything other than a villain the entire time yes. um, and by all accounts it's absolutely true it's uh, <laughs> People are born sociopaths, I think. Yes, it then follows his remarkable, um, and for reasons of it not being believable, unbelievable ascent to um, the ranks of the greatest cyclist. And from the beginning and from his first win in the Tour de France, a lot of people thought, hmm, this is too good to be true. But Chris O'Dowd's um, journalist was one of the few people that said, yeah, the reason this is probably too good to be true is probably because it's too good to be true <laughs> and he tried to investigate it uh, wrote his columns for the sunday times trying to say that armstrong's a cheat trying to find as much evidence as possible and this coming at a time for those unfamiliar with cycling which has been blighted with doping for a long long time and seriously a long long time there's a, a very famous british cyclist who died in the 1950s on an ascent of the very famous mountain mont Ventoux called Tommy Simpson and people in Britain go oh he was this great cycling hero but they tend to forget the fact that um, the reason he died was because he was exhausted and dehydrated from alcohol and barbiturates <laughs> the barbiturates which he was taking to improve his performance so it's been happening a long time and in the mid-1990s the entire Festina team was kicked out of the tour for doping and lots of them were arrested because in France doping's illegal um, and they transported all the stuff in their car over the border from Italy or possibly Spain. Some country with a border with France anyway, that's irrelevant. 
Um, so yeah, this is a a sport that has this as an endemic problem, and it is something that has scandal after scandal. And when one of their major teams, um, the entire team is caught doping, and that was just I think 1995. Um, and Armstrong starting his Tour de France run in 1997 or 1988, I think. It's just after that, so the, the officials are trying to get cycling's reputation back again, you know. So Walsh's investigations were not very welcome at the time. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> they were trying to uncover their truth. <laughs> but he had a hard time of that. I'd say he was persecuted by his his fellow journalists, and you see that, and you see the fact that they too um, don't want to believe that yet another drug scandal is going to come into the sport that they cover. Mm. And then we see also Walsh being getting difficulties with his editor at the Sunday Times saying, oh, look, you, we can't publish this without more truth. We're getting multi-million dollar lawsuits and things. Which was how Armstrong silenced a lot of his critics too, but he had made so much money and become one of the most recognised athletes in the world and had huge sponsorship contracts with companies the likes of Nike that he had an awful lot of clout and he used that clout. Mm. And so the film explores explores that, explores... It uses a lot of David Walsh's book as a basis for what happened and the actual, the, the proof that we had that positive tests were covered up, etc. But then the film invents the more private moments. But it does all seem fairly cohesive. It seems believable. So if you've seen interviews with Armstrong and you've read other things about him, and as I say, while it it would have been nice if it could have explored more what truly motivated Armstrong, because you know that he he wants to win at all costs. But I don't know. I'd like some explanation of that, but maybe mm. maybe such a thing just doesn't exist. The film, despite that, the film does at least apportion some of the blame. It apportions it to the gullible journalist, the unquestioning public, too caught up in the movie-like narrative of the cancer survivor conquering the world the self-interest of far too many parties. So the, there are some great performances here. O'Dowd shows he can play it straight, and Jesse Plemons is believably tortured as the good Mormon boy gone bad Floyd Landis, who ultimately brought about Armstrong's downfall. But it's Ben Foster's show. His portrayal of Armstrong is compelling, energetic, and frankly a little scary. If you've seen any Armstrong footage, especially when he's being asked uncomfortable questions, then you'll marvel at how Foster somehow managed to coax his facial muscles to move in the same way as Armstrong's. Um, It's a very, very strong performance. Less compliments can be paid to the director, though, whose direction's a little unfocused and doesn't trust the audience. Regular use of flashbacks to earlier scenes that we've already seen to contradict what Armstrong has just said are both distracting and unnecessary. We remember, we were paying attention, it was only 30 minutes ago. (laughs) Trust in us. And talking of distractions, whether it's a casting or direction problem, I'm not sure, but Dustin Hoffman is spectacular to place in this film. I don't know why he's there. That said though, and while this topic has been covered in um, more than one documentary in the last few years too, I would say Programme is definitely worth a watch. Yeah, uh, you do wonder at the, uh, the economic significance of getting Dustin Hoffman to do two scenes and four lines, maybe, I think it was. Yeah, like that. Um... <laughs> the extent of my notes for the programme is Lance Armstrong is a prick. 
<laughs> uh, accurate, accurate, short but accurate. That that was the main takeaway that I had from this because uh, I mean, obviously, I, I knew what was going on. I mean, one, one of the sports I did pay any attention to as a kid was uh, the Tour de France because my dad was quite fond of it, and I sort of picked up some of that as well. Uh, so it was nice to see a little cameo from Phil Liggett as well. <laughs> that brought some memories back. Uh, but uh, it's the, the voice, isn't it? It's such, yeah. such a distinctive voice. Yeah, the film itself, fine. To be honest, I could I could take it or leave it, um, but it's not made a hell of a lot of an impression on me. Um, this was the first I'd seen of it. I like Chris O'Dowd uh, as a as an actor, but um, I don't feel he's doing anything particularly special here, and I don't think more or less anyone is outside of uh, Lance Armstrong, who is creepy as all hell. Um, <laughs> he is just uh, he seems like he'd be starring in one of those news stories that ends where you turn the gun on himself, <laughs> doesn't he? He just seems like a, an absolute freak show. And, Actually, uh, no, I would. Um... The only reason I disagree with that is because Lance Armstrong was talking about a person who would basically have to be brought down possibly by a tank. That he would just keep the gun bit. I absolutely believe, but never turning it on himself. Um, he's too special. Um, but um, shooting other people, yeah, I have no difficulty believing that at all. I don't think I've really got an awful lot to say about it. It's, uh, it's perfectly fine and enjoyed it for what it was. I don't. Again, I don't really think you need to know anything about cycling at all to. Uh, just have this as a, a kind of interesting character study of someone who is driven for reasons we're not quite sure of just to win at all costs. Um, but it's really more about... It, it's less a character study of him, I suppose, than it is a character study of uh, uh, Crystal Dowd's character, uh, the guy who's trying to just get to the bottom of it at essentially all costs as well, because it's uh, uh, had some you know significant repercussions, as you mentioned, for his career mm-hmm. uh, during the course of the investigation as well. So it, it, it's sort of interesting for those experiments, but oh, sort of interesting on those angles, but I don't think it ever really picks one route to go down and it just sort of dabbles a bit in this and it dabbles a little bit in, in the other and it, it, like you say, it just feels a bit messy and unfocused. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not been... It, it feels like the kind of thing that should be driven either entirely from Chris O'Dowd's character's point of view or entirely from the Lance Armstrong point of view and not just sort of fiddle about between them and leaves it kind of strangely unbalanced in the end. That said, it certainly passed the time well enough. Um, I have no real complaints against most of the things that are in there um, and I enjoyed watching it. So it gets a mild recommendation, but I don't think it's going to be really setting anyone's world on fire unless you have any particular vested interest in either Armstrong or uh, any of his other uh, cycling friends. Quite good, but... um, middle of the pack in this uh, in this uh, company I would say um, where are you to actually watch this as a companion piece you should if you've not seen them you should definitely watch the um, Oprah Winfrey interviews and Oprah Winfrey definitely not someone like a Dan Rather or someone you know she's not um, a hardline yes. interviewer <laughs> even the rel- I mean, she doesn't shy away from some of the difficult questions but even as a relatively soft interview like her on and known for being more of an entertainment person it's fascinating to watch because you see that he's clearly a sociopath mm-hmm. and you look at him and look at his eyes during his interview it's truly fascinating and you you see this person who who cheated his way to millions and millions of dollars who cheated other athletes out of legitimate wins because there are clean cyclists in um, cycling and certainly nowadays it's an awful lot better 
and then to finally try to make concerted efforts to improve things. I'm, I'm quite sure it's not perfect and you do get drugs cheats caught occasionally still. Much, much better than it was. But even then, there were, I mean, that's the problem. The people who wanted to ride clean in the Tour de France had their careers ruined, literally ruined. And it's not the first time it happened. But. So this person who cheated all these people out of something they worked their whole lives for, who cheated and got money and respect and the big houses and things, clearly thinks he did nothing wrong. It's a truly fascinating interview. And I, just, I know this is not the purpose of our podcast, but just, if you happen to watch the programme, I just want to encourage you to watch those interviews too. Because it's fascinating to see this man who, who is saying, yes, I cheated in every single one of his seven Tour de France wins. I mean, he admits it. But you can see by his eyes, he's thinking, yes, yeah, so what? I, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I, I worked hard. I deserved that. And it's crazy. He clearly is only making the apologies because he's basically been forced to. Yeah. Or, or somehow thinks that if he says this, things will go back to where they were for him. The the level of self delusion or possibly the simple lack of caring that yeah. is goes with being a sociopath is really, really amazing. <laughs> but yes, um, films is our game and we've talked about them all for today that we're going to talk about. So that's good, I guess. We can stop talking now. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Scott, did you have anything else to say? Um no, but I will just give a shout out as alternative cycling film to the Flying Scotsman. Uh, the Mm. tale of Graham O'Brien's uh, career and uh, struggles with the red tape and entangled uh, cycling <laughs> boards that seem to be have it out for him. So that's another interesting little drama which has probably yeah. gone under most people's radars. Yes, I do like um, The Flying Scotsman. Also has a character called Malky, particularly Scottish name, but also just a great name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, interesting too. Why there's... I mean, I know it's an Englishman who's played... Scots on another couple of occasions, but why it's an Englishman playing a Scot, I don't know. Uh, but Johnny Lee Miller does a pretty decent job. And Graham Obi was someone who rode clean too, yeah. which is good. But yes, but his struggles were with both his his depression, um, his repressed homosexuality, and the the people, at the, the big wigs in the sport, basically, whom, I don't know, I mean, it's another one of those things like, you think it's just kind of cartoon villainy added in for, <laughs> yeah, for the sake of drama in a film. But some of it's real. I, like he just wasn't their type of person or something. Yeah, it did seem somewhat motiveless in, in yes. the film. I do recall. Yeah. Yes, but I think that I think possibly I've only ever seen three films that feature cycling prominently that I can remember. So I may as well mention the third, and that's the film in which the mafia kidnap cyclists and make them cycle to drain their blood and to make wine or something. I forget exactly which happens now. And where the cyclist's grandmother check, um, tracks him down with a dog. That's Belleville Rendezvous, yeah. or the triplets of Belleville, um, depending on which country you're in, where it's released. Which is great. Um, it is nothing to do with the programme at all, but it's got bikes in it, so it's the same thing. <laughs> Close enough. Hope that's enough sports ball for y'all. We will be back with a look in a mere ten days with a look at... Uh, some proper sport, that being professional wrestling with the wrestler and beyond the mat. So we'll catch you around about then. But in the intervening time, if you have any points you'd like to make to us, you can talk to us through a variety of conduits. Perhaps the most 
common being Twitter, that's we're on there at FudsOnFilm. Uh, we're also on Facebook, so you go to facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm, or you can even email us at podcast at FudsOnFilm.com if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that'd be greatly appreciated. You can do that, that'd be nice. Um, if not, tell me. We'll be back very soon. But until then, I have been Scott Morris. I've been Juju. I'm sure it's been through us too. Fare thee well. Bye.